Thank you for listening to the Tuesday 8 o'clock buzz here on WORT. I'm your host, Demita Brown. If you enjoy this program and other programs on WORT, go to WORT.org and donate. I'm going to be um, talking with Denisha Thompson. She's a social worker turned social entrepreneur. Denisha Thompson is a consultant, facilitator, and a coach who specializes in change management, leadership development, group facilitation, and building strong teams. She's also adjunct professor at Metropolitan College at New York, where she teaches a variety of courses in the School of Social um, School of Human Services, excuse me. A fierce advocate for oppressed people and their communities, Denisha helps nonprofits build strong organizational cultures and partnerships that center diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. She designs powerful meetings, workshops, retreats, and curriculum that have been high, that have become highly sought after. Um, so I want you to welcome uh, Denisha Thompson. Good morning, Denisha. Good morning, uh, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I can't think of a better way to start the new year than introducing our audience here in Madison to the kinds of things you do and the and the person that you are. So thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Um, can you start by talking to us about what made you make that move from social worker to social entrepreneur? Um, it's a really good question. I would say that um, my whole life I grew up as a helper, someone who always wanted to help, help, help. And to be quite honest, I ran from the social work profession because there are so many social workers in my family. Um, and so I'm like, I'm not going to do social work. I'm going to do psychology. <laughs> um, uh, and for all of you psychologists out there, God bless you. But it was not for me. I started working in prisons. Um, and realize that oftentimes the systems as they are right now are not about rehabilitation, not about redemption, not about restorative practices, but really about punishment and being punitive. And because I know our justice system is unjust, it was really hard for me to like just stick and stay there. And so I transitioned into um, uh, working in a homeless shelter and working in New York City um, doing direct services and again found myself very um, torn between wanting to help and make a difference in my community and kind of systems that are entrenched. Um, and the nonprofit world, quite frankly, is, um, you know, a, a well-meaning sector but often toxic and traumatic, not just for communities, but for the people who work there. And so I mm -hmm. realized, like, in order for me to have honest conversation, like, I have to get out of the nonprofit and not just be in an unsafe space kind of hierarchically, but to get out and to come in as a consultant. Because what I say now is mm -hmm. that people pay me to give my best professional judgment, to tell the truth and to be honest. And that's not always something that's present um, when you're doing direct service. And so, yeah, I said, I still want to do this work. I'm a social entrepreneur. I am about the greater good, but I want to do it from a space of truth and honesty and one where I can actually go in and help change and dismantle some of the systems that keep so many people oppressed. Wow. That is so well said. And uh, I think it's also helpful for people to know, you know, that social entrepreneurs are about social profit as opposed to nonprofit. You know, like they're, they're, they're flipping the script there in a way that is about social benefit. And you're so right. Um, the toxicity in the nonprofit sector um, is so poorly addressed. And 
so and you know so inconsistently even discussed i mean we don't talk about it nearly enough um and so can you talk a little bit more about that element i mean one of the things you may know about Madison is that there's a strong movement towards co-op building here. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I see that as one of the alternatives that people seek out here. But, and of course you can take that toxic culture with you wherever you go. Um, it doesn't matter what you call yourselves, it matters how you manifest in that space. Right. So yeah, talk about the toxicity and what is transformative in the sense of helping people change the kinds of relationships and the kinds of things that they they manifest in that space. Right. So oftentimes what I would say is like, you know, as, as with anything else, um, where power is centralized at a nonprofit oftentimes, you know, co-ops are different because co-ops is about ownership. It's about shared ownership, shared power. Um, and so it comes from a different philosophy than the charity mindset, whereas we're going into communities trying to fix people, trying to, you know, fill gaps that public policy does not provide. Um, but oftentimes people say we want to be, we want to do, um, we want to have inclusive practices, we want to engage the community, but really don't actually engage the community of people. I always say um, if it's about us but not with us, it's not for us. And so what ends up happening is that um, in most nonprofits and lots of nonprofits around the country, what you'll find is like white leadership, very powerful, top-heavy, but the people who are actually doing the work the people closest to the ground are often community members who are one or two checks away from needing the services they provide to other people. And so what ends up happening is that there is a devaluing of the community folks who work at the nonprofit. And so oftentimes what I find is I'll go into a nonprofit to do, I get hired by a CEO and they say, you know, our staff needs professional development or we have problems with our organizational culture or it's just a problem of training. And then as you start to do the org assessment and you talk to people in the organization, you recognize actually the problem is centered with the leadership or the person who hired me, right? Like they have not set up a system to allow for conversations to trickle up. It's often a trickle down um, and it often is oppressive. And I always say to leaders, you can't want to serve your community, do excellent work in the community, change the conditions in the community that keep folks oppressed while oppressing your staff, while not caring about your staff, while not thinking mm. about the wellness of your staff, while every time you want to do something, you go outside of the staff and the kind of the structures that are in place in here, and you hire someone like me, a consultant, to come in and tell you the things that your staff have been saying forever. And so some mm. of it is about, some of my work is about reorienting the value of voice, amplifying the voice of the people who actually work there and the people in the community. They have the solutions, not me as the consultant. And I think it's about helping leaders to understand you can't, you have to, like the tail follows the head. And while it might not be in a straight line behind you, you're not going to be going in one direction and your staff going in another direction. And so the problems that are here at the nonprofit are often a mirror of kind of a lack of leadership or a lack of infrastructure, a lack of systems from the top down. And so it's really about reorienting and like losing blame and like talking about accountability. That's a scary word for people. And so accountability is 360. And so what I tell people, you work at a nonprofit not to get rich. Most people work at the nonprofit because they want to do good work because they care about a community. And so how can we 
um, reorient the value of just the people who work here and the people in the community to say, it's not our job to fix you. It's our job to amplify your voice and then to give um, the solutions that you already know that are there to get those at the table, to get you at the table, to, to do away with, you know, this um, performative work towards justice, performative work towards equity. And so for me, I have real deep conversations with leadership and get them to think about, like, really, what are you doing? Are you about your mission? Are you about dismantling systems? Are you about courage and counteractions? Or is this really just kind of performative? How many more people can we serve? I always say the best nonprofits are the ones trying to put themselves out of business or trying to like pivot down the road. So if we are a nonprofit and we're about food justice, food equity, and we're serving 10,000 people a year, our highlight shouldn't be that we served more people this year than last year. Our highlight should be that we have dealt with the root <laughs> exactly. causes, that we dealt with the root causes and there are less hungry. So now we're serving less people because more people are in a better situation. Like that's the role of a nonprofit. And oftentimes nonprofits are just trying to keep themselves in business, which means you're actually not empowering community. You're not um, changing systems, changing structures, um, reorienting where power lies in a community. You're just trying to keep yourself and your doors open. And so we have conversations about really what are you trying to do? Who are the folks who need to be at the table? Who aren't you listening to? Let's be honest about kind of some of the organizational deficits. Let's be honest about why the staff hate it here or why some people are having very different experiences than other people. What's your feedback loop? You know, what are systems for people to say, I don't feel safe or I need to take some time or I have secondary trauma from all this work that I've done in communities and I need help and it's impacting my real life. And so how do we pay people? in a way that, you know, the CEO isn't making, you know, 30 times more than the caseworker. And so it really is about delving in and taking the time to have these types of conversations. And I think oftentimes when people see that this isn't performative and that we really are going to confront the elephants in the room, that you can, and you're calling out the things that create and maintain toxic culture, that you can start to address it. I had one CEO tell me once, um, that the thing that triggers her the most is when someone says something about the organization being toxic. And she's like, I know as a CEO I have to do better, but it just shuts me down because it feels like, how do I fix that? I can't fix that. We need to just move on. And then we don't make sure. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about some examples of breakthrough. I mean, I've had a, a similar situation where I was sitting in a meeting, um, which was predominantly middle-class white women, and one of the white women in the circle said, I'm tired of people talking about middle-class white women. And I was like, well, I don't know what I can say, <laughs> you know, but it's it because it's not really the, the group that's the issue. It's the values that aren't being challenged in the group, you know. What what gets them to to look at that? You talked about a feedback loop. What gets people to to listen and move outside of that performative space. What have you seen, like specifically, what have you seen that actually kind of catapults people into another way of looking at it? So I, I will say in two fronts. I think it's different when I'm working with leadership than when I'm working with kind of direct staff. I will say, I'll start with the direct staff. So staff who are working in communities, staff who are doing direct service work, um, middle managers, kind of like everyone from C-suite down, I would say oftentimes they just want to be heard and validated and not told that um, what they are saying is not a priority 
or it's like unfounded, right? And so oftentimes when I go in and do org assessments and I start asking questions, I have these one-on-one conversations, I may have group conversations, and people will say, oh, like you're really going to ask, oh, we really going to have this conversation? We've been trying to have this conversation forever, but we can't ever do it, or it's not safe, or we're scared to get in trouble. And so I think sometimes just allowing people to say the thing um, in a space where you ask them to be brave, not necessarily safe, but you say we're going to have a brave space, and you provide the table to raise the issues, um, I think is one thing, right? So just by nature of naming it, I think oftentimes things are going on under the surface, and we do a lot of covering up in the nonprofit sector as opposed to, like, let's, let's shine some light on this and talk about some solutions. So that's one. I think being involved in the conversation around solutions so everything is not kind of like a dictatorship also helps staff to say, you know what, I can, I can, I can, I could probably buy into the strategic planning process. I can see how we're trying to do it differently than what we've done in the past. But the thing I think... But Denisha, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you because I have seen people create that brave space and talk about it for years on end without making any, any transformation. You know, like we can talk about toxicity and transparency and accountability and all these things. And some people confuse the conversation with progress. So, I mean, how do you know when there's actual change? I mean, what moves them off? What moves them off of that stuck place? Right. So, what I say is like is the bridge in between. So, like, so, so that's on the direct service app. When it comes to like actually like, well, how can this be different? It's the it's when you do so. Two things. One, personal work. So, I believe that regardless of where you sit in a nonprofit, that personal, like understanding who you are, how you show up, your personal stake in it, your personal values, how they're connected to your professional values, why you keep showing up in this space, um, what are you showing to your colleagues, are you contributing to or not contributing to kind of the toxic environment, those are conversations that have to happen, and there's personal work there. But I do that with the leadership, too. I say, you want these things. You want this from your staff. You want to see this work in terms of impact and growth. But how Mm -hmm. are you actually providing a space for that? And we do leadership accountability. And as part of our courageous conversations, what I have the leadership do is own up to where they have fallen short and to do that with the staff. Because rarely does staff hear a a leader say, I messed up or I didn't put enough attention into this. And I think when they see their leadership say, okay, I have not been perfect, I'm not just blaming the staff and saying this is all you, then we can start having conversations around solutions. And what we do is co-create a plan that has like very clear action steps. So for example, one, everyone gets to set professional boundaries. What are your professional boundaries? What are the things that you know, we, how should we be speaking to each other? What are my red lines? What are your red lines? And so I think a lot of it is like that deep work, really. That's why I say I don't just do professional development, but there's a team building and conflict resolution piece of it. Oftentimes, because toxicity has been allowed to fester, it becomes a cancer, and then there's a lot of conflict. And so part of the work is also doing that conflict resolution and building in the capacity for folks to be able to have these conversations so they can get out the way. Most times at a nonprofit when things are going wrong, it's not the actual work. The work is always difficult. It's the internal toxic culture and conflict that prevents staff from showing up, that prevents 
you know, leaders from doing what needs to be done so that you actually can hit those impact goals. And so we do a lot of conflict resolution. Um, so there's some mediation involved. There's some restorative justice practices, and I teach that in a workshop. And how do we actually have these conversations when we've been harmed on the job? And then I think it's about accountability. That is such a huge piece. Like, we often look out and say, these are all the external things that are creating this. But everyone has to do, like, the man in the mirror exercise. Like, when we take a look at ourselves and we say, okay, when's the time that I know I should have been accountable and I didn't, or I, I ran from accountability, or somebody was trying to be accountable, but I wouldn't take my foot off their neck because I was so mad, or I just know I'm checked out and I'm not willing to do more. Like, everybody has to see where they are and make a commitment to doing at least one thing. And I think when people are all rowing in the same direction, it is easier to do big organizational change. What often happens mm-hmm. is that people get coaching and it's like, one person is willing, one person goes out and gets training and coaching, and then you think that's going to come back into an org and transform it. That will not. Everybody has to be doing that work, including the top leadership. Oftentimes, we send all the staff to training except anyone from the C-suite because they know everything already. Executive director doesn't need coaching. I got this. But, again, the leadership vacuum and the, the, the void of leadership, um, even when it looks like people are leading well, is often what leads to, like, the perpetuation of toxic work culture. And so we tackle that, and we say everybody has skin in the game. Everyone has a choice. Everyone contributes to this, either directly or indirectly, by, like, not stepping up and doing something differently. And so it really is. Let me jump in here, and uh, we have a few minutes left, but I wanted to jump in here. And all these things you're saying are great, Um, and, and there's so much needed. And I... I'm really happy to hear you laying it out so clearly and and to be honest, honestly for people, uh, because these we don't often say things as honestly and openly as you're saying them right now. And we need to hear it. Um, the the direction shift I want to take, though, has to do with um, some of the foundational work, uh, the self-care work, the the preparation that allows us to take that look inside that em- emboldens us yeah. to um, to do some of that inner work. Um, and some of that inner work we take for granted. Um, however, and, and this is kind of getting us back to our roots and how we met um, and, and why and one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you on um, is contemplative practice as a, one of the foundations that can help us do some of that inner work. Can you talk about how contemplative practice impacts what you do and how you use it in your work? Yeah. I mean, to promote your work or support your work? Yeah, it is so important and it's something I do in my coaching and that I really recommend um, for folks. I will say, so I was a skeptic about contemplative practices, contemplative practices, I will be honest. Um, as part of our restorative justice group, Dr. Brown, you recommended that we do this morning meditation. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try it. I always thought I was someone who could not meditate, could not sit. Some of it was I couldn't quiet my mind. Some of it was I thought I don't have time for this. But I will say one of the things you said that was eye-opening to me was like part of this is for us to learn how to be friendly with ourselves. And I will say it has been so transformational for me and so revealing for me in so many ways, because I think the number one thing is like just the self-awareness, right? Like what 
when I first started trying to do it, it was like my mind would go racing and off to something. But what it helped me to do was like to really like practice taking time, right? And practice um, things like what am I, what is my mind running to? Why can't I stay like just centered in myself and like thinking about myself? One of the things I realized from meditating was like I often don't breathe. I hold my breath so much throughout life. Some of it's a trauma response from things in my past. Um, some of it is what happens when I get anxious. But the lack of breath and the amount of time I spend in a day not breathing is something I never really realized until I started meditating and, like, really trying to breathe and realize, mm-hmm. like, oh, I would say to myself, I don't even know how to breathe. I don't know how to do this, right? I don't know how to just be still. And so, one, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's really important to recondition ourselves. I think we have been conditioned to be doers. Western society conditioned. Or unconditioned. Don't read un. Just un. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Un- and be able right. to be able to um, to listen to yourself. Right. You know, and to remove the guilt that we ha- we feel around taking time for us. So every, you can meditate at it. You can do yes. a, a bunch of types of um, contemplative practices. Um, but what I find is morning meditation for me is what really works. One, it makes me like pause before I start my very busy day and take some time for myself and to reorient my values around like busyness and like what is being productive, what is being not lazy, all those things. And like the guilt that comes from taking time for yourself. And I think that comes from, like, you know, judgment, the, the judgment that other people place on it or ideas about what you're supposed to be doing. And so I think it's an act for me, an act of resistance and, like, a counteraction to the conditioning that I've got my whole life around, like, you know, what I should be doing with my time. And so as a business owner, like, you know, as an as a entrepreneur, I'm always thinking about, like, how am I doing, what am I pouring into business, what am I pouring into business? But I really need to pour some time into myself and to become more self-aware. And what the, what the meditation has done for me is has helped me to really address issues related to, like, my trauma. So, for example, I'm very conscious of my breathing. And now when I'm, like, t- stopping my breath, I'm like, okay, what was that trigger? What, what made me stop breathing in this moment? Why am I holding my breath? And I literally asked myself. We're talking that. to Denisha Thompson who is a social entrepreneur doing some transformative work in the nonprofit uh, arena and taking a very foundational approach, encouraging people to basically dig down and be able to be reflective and mindful and work with your own your own um, reality and your own space and your own mind. Um, And I want to thank you, Denisha. Unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it at that. But I want, before you go, I want you to please tell our listeners, you know, how they can connect with what you do, because I think more of us will probably want to to get what you do into our organizations and and transform them in the ways that you've been talking about this morning. So tell our listeners um, how to connect with you. Yes, dialogue is so important. I can be found at www.denisha.com. It's D-E-N-E-I-S-H-A. Um, my company is called For Impact Consulting, um, and the website is www.forimpactconsulting.com. And looking forward to connecting with folks. Dialogue is important, so let's keep the conversation going. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Denisha Thompson, for being with us this morning. You guys heard her. Go ahead and look her up. And I hope that you guys connect and come again, Denisha. Have a good day. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Have a good day. Bye-bye.